We can let the uh, children be dismissed for a junior church. I want you to turn in your Bibles with me this morning to the book of 2 Corinthians, <clears throat> chapter 4. This morning I want to conclude our discussion on what it means to be a follower of Christ. And we've come at this from a few different directions. We've discussed the, the essence of the Christian life, which means to be a true Christian, I need to be a person who is committed to doing what Jesus did. If I don't do what Jesus did, I am simply a Christian in name. Uh, because anyone who has come to faith in Christ and has been born again by His grace and had their life changed will begin to do what He did. And the only way I can do what Jesus did is to examine His life, observe His life, and then live in obedience to what I see in his experience. We talked in the, uh, three weeks ago about the issue of, of observation and imitation. Look at what Jesus did and do it. Last Sunday, we spent our time looking at the truth that there is no discipleship without cost. There is no Christian living apart from some type of expense that I will experience. And we looked at the call of Christ to us to take up our cross, uh, or denying ourselves, take up our cross and follow him, which means that Christian living involves a cost. There's another word that I want to introduce you to this morning, and it comes out in the title of my discussion. It is this, risk-taking and Christ-following. Risk-taking and Christ-following. If I'm going to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus then somewhere in my life, there is going to emerge this issue of risk. Um, it may cost me to be a fully devoted follower of Christ. It's not meant to be an easy path. Jesus never predicted that it would be. And in light of this idea of cost counting and risk taking in order to follow Christ, I want to ask these questions to you this morning. What is it that motivates you to endure the cross that are essential in following Christ? Jesus, when you're prone to throw in the towel, when you're prone to lose heart, what motivates you to endure the cost? To pay the price? To be the man, woman, young person that God wants you to be? What is it that pulls you across the line to becoming a fully devoted follower of Christ when you know there are heavy costs involved in living that life? Webster defines risk as this. And what I'm going to argue for this morning is that there is no Christ following without risk taking. Okay, I can't follow Christ truly unless I have yielded myself to the fact that in the Christian experience there will be risk taking. I then have to ask this question, how do I define risk taking? What does it mean? Webster defines it as any action, any activity in my life that exposes me to the possibility of loss or injury. Okay, any activity in my life that exposes me to the possibility of risk, injury, or loss. You can lose money, you can lose face, you can lose health. In the Word of God, you can lose even your life. What motivates that kind of risk-oriented Christian living? This morning, I want to just lay out three very simple observations from this text that is before us, 2 Corinthians 4. I'm going to do that by beginning to read in verse 7. 
Paul talking about his experience as a jar of clay who contains the precious gift of Christ. Verse 7, he says this. He says, we have this treasure that is Christ indwelling in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry in our body the death of Christ, that is, take up your cross, so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. Meaning, through our risk-taking experience, our cost-counting experience, people see a better view of Jesus because they see a believer who is committed to following Him in spite of the risks that are inherent in following Christ. And what Paul is saying is this, the life of Jesus is manifested as the clay vessel is cracked, what is inside becomes more and more visible. So inside is the light of Christ by the indwelling of His Spirit. As that clay vessel is battered and broken, what is inside is increasingly revealed with greater clarity. And in the end, the vessel can take no credit for what has happened. The vessel, simply through being struck and broken, yields to the greater glory of Christ. And here's what Paul says, so that Christ may be revealed in my body. He was a risk-taking Christian. If you study the life of Paul, one thing you're going to find out very quickly is he didn't know what it meant to live a safe Christian life. We've perfected it in America. We've had 350 years of protected Christianity. And when we talk about cost, we struggle with getting it down. We're so used to getting by with little friction in our life and in our experience. We have become so adept at almost becoming, spiritually speaking, chameleons. Who know how to live respectable Christian lives, but not risk-taking Christian lives. And the result, I believe, is that the church in America, by and large, is anemic. Because we haven't tasted the price. Because we're unwilling to risk anything. So that others may know the treasure that was revealed through the suffering that Paul went through. Verse 12, he says this. So then, death is at work in us but life is at work in you. Through Paul's experience, something of the life of Christ was becoming clearer and clearer to the people in Corinth. They were knowing him better as a result of the buffeting that Paul and his other brothers who served Christ in Corinth, what they endured made Christ clearer and clearer. And so my first thought this morning for you is going to be this. And just, these three are going to tie together. First one is this. In the words of Paul and in the words of Christ, Christ following, being a disciple, doing what Jesus did, involves risk taking. Okay, if I'm going to follow Christ, I have to reckon with activities, with actions that may expose me to the, to the possibility of loss or injury. Now, I know that sounds unpopular. But there's no other way that I can interpret this text. There's no other way I can understand the directives and call of Jesus Christ, our Savior, than to say that Christ's following will always involve risk-taking. Here's a question I want to ask you this morning. You might be saying, okay, Pastor Tim, 
I'm not so sure about that. You know, I would like to preserve my life from risk. Let me ask you a question this morning. Did any of you this morning take a risk? Anybody here this morning take a risk? Raise your hand if you did. I did. Okay? There are insurance companies out there that insure your car who calculated the risk that you endured by getting in your car and driving to church on Sunday morning. You took a risk. You could have passed someone like me. On Sunday mornings, I get up really early, and when I'm driving in, I realize there's a unique risk early in the morning on what really is Saturday night, early Sunday morning. I know there's a risk. You know what? When cars come towards me early on Sunday morning, I drive very carefully to minimize the risk. Every one of us folks faces risk in our lives. Every one of us. Will you take a risk for Christ? You'll take a risk to get to the grocery store. Young people will take a risk to get to the mall to buy some clothes. Crossing Route 22. Scared me to death when my first order did that. So she asked about going to Dunkin' Donuts to get me a cup of coffee crossing Route 31. That risk seemed reasonable for some reason. <laughs> Made sense. The bottom line is this. You can't. You can't follow Christ without reckoning with actions that will put you in a place where you may experience loss or injury. The Apostle Paul reckoned with that. He said, I live in a jar of clay that when it is battered, it breaks. It's not a protected environment. One of the questions I would like to ask you is this. Is risk-taking, as I am asserting, is it unique or normal Christian living? Is it those things? Is it unique? Is it normal? John 15, 20, Jesus said this. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted you, they, what's the word? They will persecute you. I have no other way of interpreting that text except to say that there will be risk-taking and cost involved in following the Savior. And Paul had reckoned with that risky living. I want you to turn back with me to the book of Acts real quickly. Acts chapter 14, answering this question, is this risk-taking unique or is it normal Christian living? Acts chapter 14, just turn back there real quickly with me. Acts chapter 14 and verse 22. Acts 14, and I'll begin reading in verse 21. Acts 14. It says, they preached, this is Paul and Barnabas, if you go back up to verse 19 and 20, they preached the good news, that is the gospel of Christ in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. What were they doing? They were strengthening the disciples, that is people that were committed to doing what Jesus did, and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Well, why was he doing that? Because becoming a Christian in the first century usually cost you your life. It usually cost you your life. When you profess faith in Christ in the waters of baptism, publicly demonstrating that you would follow Christ, you were assuming a risk, a cost. And here's what Paul said to them. He was encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Why? Because staying true to the faith in that context would not come easily. It would not emerge naturally in your flesh. Yes, I would like to suffer for the cause of Christ. No, that's a choice that you have to make. 
And Paul says he is encouraging them to remain true to the faith, that is to the Savior. He says this then, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. We must experience cost and risk in order to get to where God wants us to be ultimately. And he assumes that risk-taking is a must. It is a necessity in the Christian experience. That along the way of living a life fully devoted to Christ, I will experience loss and potentially injury because I love Christ. Is it normal in your life? Paul was not a Christian of convenience. I, and someone was saying this to me recently, a new believer in our church shared their faith with someone else and that person gave them this response. They said, I'm glad that you have Christ. Because it looks like it works for you. He said, I found that troubling. I'm glad you have Christ because it appears to work for you. Can I ask you a question this morning? Was Paul a Christian because it worked for him? You know how people mean that? It seems to give fullness in your life. Jesus seems to be meeting all of your needs emotionally, and it looks like it works for you. I want to challenge you to think of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and I want you to ask yourself this question. Did Christianity work for Paul? Okay, meaning did Christ-following, cost-counting living work? Did it, was it, did it really you know, fire up and charge all of his batteries? Is that why he followed Christ? I commend you to look at 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23. Paul says, are they servants of Christ? I am more. I have worked much harder. Now listen to what he says. He's a devoted servant of Christ. I much more. I have worked much harder. Been in prison more frequently. Been flogged severely. Been exposed to death again and again. Five times I've received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger of bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers. That is within the church. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known much hunger and thirst. And have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else. I face the daily pressure of my concern for the churches. Who is weak? And I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin? And I do not inwardly burn. Okay, here's the conclusion. Paul followed Christ because it worked. That is absurd. Paul was a follower of Christ because he saw the resurrected Lord. And the resurrected Lord changed his life and called him to be a follower. He was not a devoted follower of Jesus because it worked. He was a follower of Christ who embraced the likelihood of risk and endured it because he knew that Christ's following always involves risk. Always. And folks, here's the question I want to ask you this morning. What risk have you been enduring so that Christ can be known? Because that's really what it's all about. We live in a world that does not know Christ. 
And He has called us to make Him known. His work on the cross known. What risk have I been, think of it this way, what risk have you been avoiding? What discussion with someone who is open have you been avoiding? What discussion with someone who is clearly closed have you been avoiding? Because you don't want to pay the price. You don't want to risk the injury or loss that the Apostle Paul seemed to so freely and willingly embrace, that the Savior seemed so willingly and freely to embrace. Christ following involves risk taking. And I believe there is no Christ following apart from risk taking. Second thought I want to leave with you is found in verses 15 and 16 of 2 Corinthians 4. And I'll just pick up in verse 13 just for the setting of the context for you. <coughs> oh, excuse me, sorry. That scared me. <clears throat> it is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Okay, what is it? There is this deep-rooted faith that leads to speaking boldly and that bold speaking has consequence. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore we speak because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us up with Jesus and present us with you in His presence. Now, there, Paul's getting to what? The heart of what motivates him to be a risk taker. If they kill me, God will overcome that. That personal risk or injury will be corrected by the grace and power of God. That's Paul's deep-rooted confidence. <clears throat> and that one day, to be presented in His presence with Christ. Then he says in verse 15, All this is for your benefit. All of this suffering... All of this risk-taking is for your benefit. Paul's saying, I'm not doing it for me. I'm not doing it because it works or because it makes me feel good. I'm doing it for you. So that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. What is Paul's passion? Paul's passion is the glory of God. And if that glory in Paul's experience is achieved as a result of his risk-taking, and what Paul is saying is, I'm up for that. Count me in. Count me in the group of risk-takers who give up all so that Christ can be known for the benefit of others and for the glory of God. So he's working out his Christian experience where? On the horizontal plane, he's working out this Christ-following, self-denying, cross-carrying life. Why is he doing it? He's doing it for the glory of God. The people that he served, if you read through his letters, you're going to find they often fall away. They turn on him and criticize him. But he's willing to absorb that risk so that Christ may be known. The second thought I want to leave you with this morning is this. Risk-taking Christ followers will often face circumstances that cause them to reconsider the cost. Risk-taking Christ followers will often face circumstances that cause them to reevaluate and to reconsider the cost of being a Christ follower. I believe that Paul went through that kind of experience. I know that the believers in Hebrews did. They began to experience severe suffering. Paul wrote to them and said, be careful that you don't throw away your faith. What did he know? That in the path of risk-oriented Christian living and Christ following... There will be circumstances that sometimes cause us to look around at those around us who are experiencing blessings that we don't have, and the reason is Christ. So sometimes in your Christian experience, you're going to hit circumstances like this. 
Paul says we do this so that more and more may know Christ and so that more and more glory may go to God. Verse 16 is where I think he makes his decision. Therefore, in light of this, glory of God and the benefit of others, we will endure risk-taking Christian living and in it we do not lose heart. Okay, we don't throw in the towel. Though, outwardly, we are wasting away, yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. And what Paul's going to do now is shift to a perspective that encourages risk-taking living. Okay, so Christ following always involves risk-taking. When you begin to follow Christ, you're going to begin to experience costs that are more than you anticipated when you first began to follow Christ. And when that happens, you're going to ask yourself this question. Am I going to keep following? Am I going to finish the race that I began? Or am I going to look at the cost and say, you know what? Unwilling to pay the price. And that's the challenge that all of us as Christians face just over and over. The circumstances, the cost, the risk will cause us to reconsider, do I really mean to follow Christ faithful through to the end. When I started college at 21 years old, I was, if I use the word petrified, I promise you I'm not exaggerating. I remember being asked, how do you think you'll do at college? And my honest answer was, I really don't have a clue. Because I never took school that seriously. No applause from the front row, please. <laughs> These young people are saying to their parents, Pastor Tim didn't take school seriously, why should I? Look at him, that's what they're saying. Yeah, look at him. You want to be like that? No. <laughs> Don't be like me. Um, all, my, my academic skills were lacking and untested, at best, at very best. I remember, and, and look, I, I committed my life to Christ, which I told you about four weeks ago, in terms of service. And said, Lord, whatever you want me to do. And he said, it's ministry. And I knew that confidently in my heart that it was to do it and to preach the word of God. I came to speech class. This was not good. I mean, I was the guy that if they said, okay, we're going to go around the room and read the verses, I counted how many people there were. And I was practicing my verse. Because I was so afraid of appearing incompetent. I was so afraid that I would look stupid. So I go to a college that puts a big emphasis on public speaking. And keep in mind, when I said yes to the Lord, I said yes to public speaking, but I didn't know that. I got in speech class, first speech, memorized it over and over and over again as if that would help. I, got, I went through my speech, I honestly, sincerely don't remember anything at all. I talked about something about plumbing from my dad's hardware store. Okay, the ben It was a persuasive speech, the benefits of using such and such a sealant as opposed to another sealant. Okay, that's just grabbing, isn't it? I got done that speech. I sat down. I, my whole body, like, burst into sweat. I had a white shirt on and didn't wear a t-shirt. You know, the white button up with the tie on so that he couldn't get out. <laughs> Everybody in the class is like, 
what's happening? God called me to the ministry. That's what's happening. Like, how can you speak in front of people? I'm like, I have no idea. People ask me to this day, do you get nervous when you get up to speak? I'm like, I, every time. Every, well, you would have never known it. No, every time, I promise you. If I go to a pastor's conference and I'm sitting at a table with 10 people with my extroverted, insane friend, Chris Hussey, he, he wants to introduce me to every person there. And I'm like, totally, sh- and you've, I know you find this hard to believe. I'm comfortable with, with my church family. You put me in that setting, I am like shutting down. One-on-one, I am fine. Because you don't look too bad. And what I wrestled with in that speech class and later that night was this. Will I obey God's call to the ministry if I don't have a guarantee that I'm going to look good? It's almost embarrassing to admit that. Am I willing to do what God called me to do if I appear incompetent? Am I willing, as Paul said, I am willing to be a fool for Christ? You know what the answer was for me that day? No. Nope. If I'm going to get down every Sunday after speaking and do this, I'm not really interested. And I had to wrestle through that and pray that God would give me the strength to be able to do something that I felt totally incompetent at doing. And I had to wrestle with cost. There's some men a few years ago who had to wrestle with the cost of Christ following. Don, this. If I don't do that soon, something's going to happen. It could be exceedingly unpleasant. Some men that in 1955 obeyed the call of God to go and reach a tribe of savages. And everybody wondered why five men and their wives and their children of such caliber would take such a risk to take the gospel of Christ to a tribe of savages called the Wadhanis. If you're familiar with the story, you know in 1955, Christmas season, they're preparing to go. Uh, January 5th, they make their flight into a beachhead on a river, a sand beachhead, to encounter people that had never seen Westerners before. The long and short of the story is this. All five of them were speared to death on that beach. All five gave their lives. And many in America, including Life Magazine, asked the question, why? Why? A few months after their death, Jim Elliott, one of the men, his wife, began to write a book called Through Gates of Splendor. The story of how her husband, and the husbands of Forrest, her dearest friends, lost their lives, risking all for the cause of Christ. Here's the question that comes to mind. I wonder if they reconsidered the cost. Did they have to revisit what Christ following would mean to them? Did they think about the possibilities and still follow Did they reckon with the risk that God had called them to and still obey Him? That's the question that has to be answered when you read their story. And I think I read this for you about a year ago, but it 
it bears repeating. She sits down as they reckon through this final decision. The other wives and I talk together one night about the possibility of becoming widows. Would we do? God gave us peace of heart and confidence that whatever might happen, His word would hold. We knew that when He putteth forth His sheep, He goes before them. God's leading was unmistakable up to this point. Each of us knew that when we married our husbands, there would never be any question about who came first. God and His work held first place in each of their lives. It was the condition of true discipleship. And that, when I read that phrase the other day again, that risk-taking, that risk-orientation, that cost-counting is the condition of true Christ-following. It became, and this is powerful, it became devastatingly meaningful now. It was time for soul-searching, a time for counting the possible costs. And there's the answer to my question. Did they wonder if they were willing to take the full risk? The answer is, yes, they did. Was it the thrill of adventure that drew our husbands on? The answer is, certainly no. Their letters and journals make it abundantly clear that these men did not go out as some do to shoot a lion or to climb a mountain. Their compulsion was from a different source. Each had made a personal transaction with God, recognizing that he belonged to God, first of all by creation, and secondly by redemption through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. This double claim on their lives settled once and for all the question of allegiance. It was not a matter of striving to follow the example of a great teacher. To to conform to the perfect life of Jesus was impossible for a human being. And Jesus was God and and had actually taken on himself human form in order that he might die and by his death provide not only escape from the punishment which their sin so deserved, but also a new kind of life, eternal both in length and quality. This meant simply that Christ was to be obeyed. And that's the kind of phrases, when you read this, it just jumps out. No Christ following without cost counting. A true disciple comes to Christ unconditionally. It means that Christ is simply to be obeyed. And more than that, that He would provide, and this I think is crucial, the power to obey. The point of decision for the five had been reached. God's command, go ye and preach the gospel to every creature, was the categorical imperative. Meaning, it was The command that drew brackets around the entirety of their life. And that entire category of the life of Jim Elliott, Ed McCulley, and the other three was to be fully devoted to Christ. Folks, here's the question for you this morning. Does Christ have categoric authority in your life? Does He have categoric? Can He draw brackets around the entire existence of your experience and say that is mine. Because it led to this commitment as they, on the eve of going out to that little beachhead on that river to begin to reach a savage group of people that were known for spearing each other as they went. Here's, here's the, what they said. The question of personal safety became wholly irrelevant. The question of personal safety in light of obedience became 
wholly irrelevant. I think back to that class. Think back to finishing that speech and just because I was embarrassed by my appearance, by how I looked, I wanted to throw in the towel. What risk is God calling you to? And what's it going to cost? Because you need to reckon with that before you make the decision. And after you make the decision, you're going to have to revisit the cost. Paul did it with great joy. And that leads me to the next question as we look at this text. And it is this. The cost of risk taking that sometimes will be astonishing must be evaluated in light of what is gained. Okay? So there's no Christ following without cost. Sometimes the cost of Christ following will cause me to reevaluate my commitment to Christ. But I think what this text starts to lean towards is this very simple truth. That the cost of risk taking, when I am in that evaluation mode, I must evaluate the risk, the cost, in light of what is to be gained. Okay? In light of what is to be gained. Now go back to verse 16 of 2 Corinthians 4. Paul says, therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. In this process of loss, there was an affirmation from God of His presence and power in the life of the Apostle Paul that drew him forward in devoted, sacrificial, risk-taking, Christ-following. Notice what he says in verse 17. You have to love this. And and how he can say this, in light of what I read... (coughs) What I read to you from 2 Corinthians 11. His suffering. Okay, Here's how Paul looked. We look at it and we're like astonished. If we hear that someone is beaten for sharing Christ in a foreign country, we are aghast. Why? Because for 350 years, we've experienced protected faith. We, we have a hard time reckoning with what it really means to pay a price. And so we have become so reluctant and protective. Paul says, verse 17, think about this. Our light and momentary troubles... Okay, now think about that. Our light and momentary troubles. How, long, how, how, many, how many years do you think it took for Paul to endure the list that I read to you in 2 Corinthians 11? Light and momentary. How do you get that perspective? How do you get that perspective? That what I am going through is light. It's not heavy. People say to you, oh, that must be so hard. Paul's like, not really. Not really. And what I want to argue this morning is that Paul had a perspective that adjusted his view of the temporal life here that allowed him to see the invisible and the invisible that he saw motivated him to live his life for the glory of God. Verse 18, here's what he says. And this is the decision. So we fix our eyes. Not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. What Paul was looking forward to gaining as a result of risk-taking had eternal consequence and value. Eternal consequence and value. And Paul said, look, if somebody puts before you something that has lasting value and something that has temporal value, that is only going to benefit you for a time, but they offer you something that causes greater joy, and it gives longer and lasting benefits. Which will you choose? I mean, the answer is very simple, isn't it? 
And what the Apostle Paul is saying is, he's reckoned with the, the brevity of life. He's looked at James chapter 4 where James says, what is your life? It is even a vapor. It is here for a while. And then what? It's gone. I mean, look, I am 48 years old. In two years, I will cross the mark of 50. I am stunned. I look at Marissa Remy. When I first met her, she was three years old, four years old. She's 20, whatever now, 23 now. So you were 19 when I met you? I, mean, I, look, I look at Marissa and I'm like, what happened? What happened? How quick life passes. Why? It is a vapor. And as you get older, you know what you start doing? You start living from event to event instead of day by day. And you know what happens? Time begins to fly. You know what Paul said? This life is at best temporary. And Paul said, what I am living for is eternal. The reason Paul was willing to suffer like that here is because he knew that what he would gain would be of eternal consequence. And that pushed Paul to be this radical, risk-taking example of a Christ follower. I love the way he phrases it when he moves into verse uh, 1 of chapter 5. He says, now we know that if this earthly tent is destroyed, and by the way, just ignore the, par the uh, chapter divisions that are not part of the original writing of Scripture. He says, now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed. Now, what was Paul? By trade. He was a tent maker. The analogy that he uses here is, if this earthly tent, and the tent is always a temporary dwelling that you live in until you get to the real thing. That's the picture here. Paul says, if this earthly tent is destroyed. The idea is, if you pull up the stakes and collapse it, indicating that that person no longer lives there. What does he say? We have a, and I love this contrast, if this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in the heavens, not built by human hands. You know what Paul was saying? He's saying, I live a risk-oriented life because the risk orientation of my life causes me to crave the glory of heaven. So we get so caught up in the blessings of the temporal realm that we lose our grasp on the greater glory. We let Satan switch the price tags in life. And we believe that there is great joy in the temporal things. And what Paul wants us to realize is the temporal in no way compares to what the Father has prepared for us. And if we can begin to cultivate a vision for the invisible promises of God, it will free us from slavery and tyranny in relationship to temporal things. God so wants to deliver us and free us. This tent, Paul says, when it is dismantled, I have, and that I believe is a metaphor for death, we have a better place, a building, and it is a contrast of the permanent to the temporary. And I love what Paul says this. He says, we have already in our possession by faith a dwelling from God. If you drop down to verse 5, you've got to love what he says. He says, now it is God who has made us for this very purpose, this eternal glory. And He has given us His Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Okay, He gives you His internal Spirit, His personal voice speaking and encouraging you in your life. And He is a foretaste of the greater glory that is to come. Do you have your eyes set on the prize so that you're willing to pay the price? Do you think about the glory of heaven? Do you ask yourself, what will it be like to be face to face with Christ? I recently received a letter from someone who was thanking me for something that is in many ways insignificant. And what they were saying to me was this. They were saying, thank you for making that decision in your life. 
when I put that card down, I started to think about standing before Christ. And I, my heart was encouraged by this brother's words. I thought about when we stand before Christ. Do you want to be a cost-counting, risk-taking follower of Christ when you stand before Him? I know I do. I don't want to get there with all my trinkets and all the things that I apparently clung to that kept me from cost-counting and risk-taking Christian living. I want to stand before Him having done everything that He asked me to do. You see, the greatest prize is that when we move on, we are into His presence. And that's what Paul is clinging to. He is clinging to this greater glory and greater joy that is very similar to what the believers in the book of Hebrews who lived by faith saw. Hebrews 11, by faith Abraham, when he was called to go to a place that he would later receive as his inheritance, he obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, temporary dwellings. Why? As did Isaac and Jacob. Why? They were heirs with him of the same promise. Why did Abraham do this? Why did he live in tents? Why didn't he build a house when he got to the land that God gave him? Here's the answer. He was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. He was able to keep himself distanced from the temporal pleasures because he was longing for the reward. I also think of Moses. By faith, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, to be a prince in Egypt, he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking forward to his reward. Why did he take a risk? Because he had his eyes on the future. He would not trade temporary pleasure for eternal glory. The most enjoyable funerals for me are funerals for Christians who have lived fully devoted lives. So that when you get together and you rehearse their life, you can remember their sacrifice, their commitment, their risk-taking, their cost-counting. And it is a glorious time because you know that they are, at that moment, face-to-face -face with Christ. And in their heart and in their mind and on their lips, there is no question about the cost that was endured. It will all make sense when you stand face to face with Christ. And so this morning, bring this to a place of application. What is the risk that God is calling you to this morning? Young person in school, the risk of Letting people know that you're a Christian. The risk of speaking the name of Christ and saying, I know Him. And He is my Savior in spite of the cost. Financially, maybe your realm of risk-taking, giving sacrificially and proportionately to God's work. When I think that hanging on will give me greater joy, God says to you, Malachi 3.6, test me in this, risk and see if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing that you cannot contain. Perhaps this morning as an adult, stepping out to publicly for, to profess faith in Christ in the waters of baptism in this simple step 
of obedience to say, I am a follower of Christ. Or perhaps in your workplace, just going public with your commitment to Christ. Will you speak His name in spite of the risk that you've been calculating for years? A young adult in our church family, perhaps, in your heart lurks the call of God. And you've skillfully avoided it. And the cost and the risk. But in your heart there is, I am sure, as I know personally, the call of God. Who is saying to you, I want you to risk all. Paul said, risk is born out of not the temporal realm. But out of seeing the realm that is eternal. And when that choice is made, the true joy of the Christian life will be experienced. John Piper has said, we all want the best happiness. And we all want the longest happiness. And that's why we avoid risk. We all want the best happiness. And we all want the longest happiness. And Paul says, there is a longest happiness. It's forever. It is forever. I don't know if you've ever had an experience in your life where you look at your friend that's with you enjoying something and you say to them, it doesn't get any better than this. Ever had that experience? Sitting with the family, enjoying some time with some friends. It happened to us this summer. Uh, we were out west overlooking Sedona. We were on top of a hill called Schnebley Hill. The temperature was just utterly perfect. And we were a few miles up on a mountain. Had taken some jeeps through some rock crawling stuff and got up there and looked out. I thought, you know what? It really doesn't get any better than this. You know what Paul would say? Oh, yeah, it does. Oh, yeah, it does. And folks, you know why we don't risk? Because we're all living for that experience. That, to be quite honest from you, driving down the mountain, it disappeared. It's not eternal. It's temporal. Don't live for the temporal. Be a risk-taking Christ follower. And the glory of the cross will be the joy of your life. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?